0: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather. Now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
1: VGW group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+.
2: Stay tuned after the credits at the end of this episode for a short preview of our season 7 case. No. Today marks the end of the beginning. In the spring of 2018, I received an email from a woman named Helena Rose. She asked me if I would please consider reinvestigating the murder of Jim Melgar. Helena is the sister in law of Liz Rose. I reviewed the Melgar case just like I review any other case during the screening process. And it didn't take long for me to realize that very likely an innocent woman had been sent to prison. The prosecution's theory of the case seemed pathetic on its face. Sandy had no motive, and the circumstances of her confinement in the closet appeared to make it impossible for her to have killed her husband. The defense theory, on the other hand, made perfect sense. It was simple. Home invaders broke into the house, hit Sandy over the head. She had a seizure and suffered from a very common side effect of seizures, retrograde amnesia. She couldn't tell police what happened to her husband because she couldn't remember. I launched into the investigation in the same way that I've tackled every investigation. Phase one is always to examine the prosecution's case first, to determine if a wrongful conviction actually occurred. Throughout this season, we've all experienced the pro-prosecution element of this case, engaging in a disingenuous and dishonest portrayal of our work and investigation. The constant claim being that I'm only producing defense-friendly information to you, the truth and justice audience. But the fact of the matter, as you're all very well aware, is that this couldn't be any further from the truth. Not only have my conclusions and opinions been based on expert examinations from people like Jim Clementi, Jim Fitzgerald, and even the state's own blood spatter expert, Celestina Rossi, but on top of that, in the first weeks of this season, you heard Sandy's unedited police interrogation tapes and from the prosecutor herself, Colleen Barnett. For my own knowledge, and for yours, I wanted to hear the strength of the state's case directly from the woman who developed it. When I interviewed Barnett, the strength of her case against Sandy lied in two prongs. Number one, it doesn't make sense for home invaders to have killed Jim. Number two, it's possible that Sandy could have pulled this off on her own. At no time during trial or in my interview with her, did Colleen Barnett ever present any evidence that Sandy actually did commit this crime. I want to start out today by walking you back through my process of investigating the points of Sandy's guilt as presented by the woman who sent her away to prison. Barnett presented this audience with 11 elements of her case that she believes proved that no one other than Sandy Melgar was in the house that night. What you think are the, are the biggest stanchions of your case? What what are your points of guilt? If we can kind of go through them. I don't know if you have like a bullet pointed list or however you want to do it, but Kind of point by point, what, what led you to believe that Sandra Melgar was, in fact, guilty?
3: It's a quiet little neighborhood that's um, very... There are a lot of trees. There's it, It's very um, soft. It's quiet. Um, they lived on a street that was off the main road. Um, the, I think it was like the second or third house in on, on the on the street that it was on. All the houses were nice. It was just quiet. And it it, did, it didn't strike me as a house that anybody would naturally pick to do a robbery, number one. Mm-hmm. So, and the fact that it was in that neighborhood that they hadn't had any type of robberies or any type of crime like that before. And when you have to think about what a person who wants to go and try and burglarize that house, what they're looking at, the mail guards, according to Sandra, were awake and it was like, I think midnight or one o'clock in the morning, so they had four dogs that were barking and they were in the jacuzzi tub talking about how much they loved each other for two hours. Why would a burglar go into a house in that neighborhood where the people were not only there, but they were awake and had barking dogs? That doesn't make sense.
2: A short conversation with the Kingwood home invasion victims and a study of the police report from that case in the 2009 case eliminates this argument. Isabel and her family lived in a nice neighborhood just like the Melgars. Halfway down a dead-end street, and there had never been a home invasion in that neighborhood before. It was 1 a.m., and the victims were home and awake. Just knowing that alone eliminates this argument completely. It does make sense.
3: The the burglar, if there was one, there was no forced entry into the house. The burglar, if there was one, did not bring with him or her a backpack to take anything from the house. They did not bring a weapon with them. So it's not, there's no understanding of how they even got in the house, much less what they were doing in the house while they were there. They didn't have a weapon, didn't have a backpack, didn't have anything. When they left, um, if there was a burglar, they opened the garage door, which would have caused a A big sound, and that would have alerted anybody to them coming out and left the garage door open. Well, if they didn't get in through the garage, why would they leave through the garage? That didn't make sense.
2: First of all, there is no way for us to know if the home invaders in the Melgar case had weapons with them. Jim was stabbed with a knife, which is a weapon, and we don't know if the killer brought it with them or if they took it from inside the house. And the argument that this couldn't have been home invaders because it doesn't make sense for home invaders to enter a house without a backpack becomes moot based on the Kingwood attack. In that case, the home invaders used the family's backpacks and laundry baskets to carry out the stolen items. And those items were placed by the door during the robbery to be retrieved later. And lastly, the garage door. Colleen is stating as fact what's really an assumption that the killers didn't enter through the garage door. In my opinion, and in retired homicide detective Billy Belk's opinion, The garage door is the most likely point of entry for the home invaders. This entire point made by Barnett is solely based on speculation. And the, quote, that doesn't make sense argument is absolutely false. We know for a fact that this exact set of circumstances did occur in Harris County just months before Jim's murder.
3: They didn't take anything. There was a backpack found in the garage that belonged to, I think, the daughter that she identified that had stuff in it, like earrings and different things of jewelry, but it was left in the garage. Why would the burglar pack a backpack that he that wasn't his, put stuff in the backpack and walk to the garage leave it in the garage? That doesn't make sense. None of that makes sense.
2: First of all, there are absolutely items missing from the Melgar's house. TV, DVD player, Xbox, tools, and prescription narcotics have all been reported missing. In order to come to the conclusion that nothing was missing, Barnett has to disregard everyone's statements and testimony that actually knows what was supposed to be in the house, even outside of Sandy and her family. Tammy Armstrong testified that she had been in Jim and Sandy's bedroom and confirmed that there was a TV there and it was missing. And regarding the backpack in the garage, Barnett believes that this is an indication of Sandy staging the scene to cover up for the murder. But Jim Clemente sees things differently.
4: Actually... Even though the, the prosecutor used it as an indicator of her guilt, of Sandy's guilt, to me, it cuts much more the other way. If you were going to do this, and you were going to actually use a weapon from the house, then why wouldn't you actually get rid of it? Why wouldn't you discard it? Right. And I feel the same way with the, uh, you know, the backpack that you told me about in the garage.
3: Okay, so if you look in the the bedroom picture, there's a picture of the bed, and then there's the dining room chair, right? Right. you familiar with that? Yes. Okay, why is the dining room chair in the bedroom? Did a robber move that over there? I mean, there's no explanation for why, and that is the chair that has all the blood dripping from it. So the original blood that comes off of Jamie Melgar is on that chair. Why is... It, why would a, why would anybody move the dining room chair over to the bed? And there's no explanation for that. A robber certainly wouldn't have done that. Why would a robber do that?
2: First of all, Barnett is again claiming that the, quote, original blood from Jim is on the chair. Her own blood spatter expert has stated repeatedly that Jim was never in that chair. To quote Celestina Rossi directly, quote, nothing I have puts Jamie in the chair, end quote. And secondly, for her to claim that no one has ever explained the presence of the chair is disingenuous. Neither Barnett or the police ever asked anyone from the family why the chair was in the bedroom. I did, and I found out that there is a very simple explanation. The chair was always kept there for the dogs to get onto the bed. And this is corroborated by the fact that there is a blanket on the chair covered in dog hair, and you can clearly see impressions in the carpet indicating that the chair was always kept in that location. They said there was like a red rope, that was described as being around Jaime's chest, was that correct?
3: Yeah, it was laid up on top of his chest. It wasn't like behind him. And it was like a it wasn't a rope, it was like a cord. Okay. It was about the, it was about the size that has the width of a jump rope.
1: Okay. Like a
3: you know one you would buy at Target or something. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't very thick and it matched another red cord that was in a different bedroom's closet.
5: Okay.
2: Um, cause what so that
3: had to be something that, the, again, the burglar got from inside the house.
2: This entire statement is completely false. It was, in fact, a rope. It was behind Jim. In fact, it ran under his leg, his buttock, behind his back, and around his chest. And it absolutely did not match the red satin dress strap from Liz's closet. This is an absurd, false statement of facts.
3: All right. Well, I had a blood expert uh, talk about the, the blood patterns in the, the room. And by the way, there was no blood anywhere else. So right. the idea is, and, and behind the chair is another piece of material. It's like a, it's called a, it's a bench. I think it's like a shower bench.
2: Right. I've seen that. Yep.
3: It had blood on it, except for it had a, it looked like there was a towel on top of it where the blood had got on, only on part of the bench and not on the other, based on the towel. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So the idea is, this is the idea that that I came up with, that Jamie is sitting in the chair, there's sex toys underneath the pillow, and she has a knife that she's probably, she talks a lot about getting massages and that kind of thing. Jamie was not into massages, but she was. She's, she's talking about uh, she's probably behind him they're doing some kind of something or other. She pulls out the knife and the first strike is going to be that that one linear uh, knife wound from the left part of his chest that goes straight away across his neck. There's that one that one striking striking um, cut, I guess.
2: This is another statement that has no bearing in reality. Barnett mentions her blood expert and then claims that the attack began outside of the closet on the chair. Rossi's actual assessment was that the first injuries took place in the doorway of the closet. And Again, Rossi has been very clear on this matter. None of the crime scene evidence puts Jim in that chair, ever.
3: If she's sitting in the tub and she turns her head um, to the right, she would see... What was, well, first of all, if there's a fight between those two and, and he's stabbed, you know, a many times and they're fighting with each other, she's going to hear it. I'm telling you, I measured the, the distance between the tub and the closet and it was 20 feet. Okay. So I just can't imagine that she would be in the tub and not hear anything or see anything. Him screaming or yelling her name or something, that just that does not make sense.
2: This doesn't make sense if Sandy didn't have a seizure. This doesn't make sense if Jim was attacked in the bedroom while Sandy was still in the tub. This doesn't make sense if Sandy herself wasn't knocked unconscious. And this doesn't make sense if Jim wasn't actually attacked and knocked unconscious himself in the living room. Remember the MO of the home invaders in the other two cases that we've looked at. In both cases, we have a quick rush, a hit on the head, and then the binding. All I'm hearing from Barnett are theories based solely on assumptions and speculation.
3: Why would the, the burglar then put the knife in the jacuzzi tub and a white blouse? Why would the burglar do that? That doesn't make
4: sense.
2: I'll let Jim Clemente answer that one again. He doesn't find it nearly as laughable as Barnett does.
4: Actually, even though the... The prosecutor used it as an indicator of her guilt, of Sandy's guilt. To me, it cuts much more the other way. If you were going to do this and you were going to actually use a weapon from the house, then why wouldn't you actually get rid of it? Why wouldn't you discard it?
3: The stories that she tells about how she was tied up vary. The first one that she says is that, um, she, that her husband goes, uh, that he leaves, goes to the kitchen to get something, comes back, um, then he goes, the dogs are barking on the outside and, um, and she can hear them barking on the outside. And so he goes outside to get the dogs and then she says that she just blacks out. Then story number two is she waits 15 minutes for him and then she blacks out. Then she changes it when the detectives try and Catch her on that, like that she's been waiting fifteen minutes and Jamie doesn't come back and she doesn't hear or see anything, then she shortens it to six minutes or five minutes. Um, then she, it, when she blacks out, then she gives another story of she remembers um, getting out of the tub and there is a her her closet is in the bathroom. It's a nice large closet, but it's the, the the entry to it is through the bathroom. She says she's sitting on the chair, um, getting, putting lotion on her legs. Again, hasn't heard any kind of anything happening with her husband being stabbed to death. And then somebody comes in and hits her on the back of the head. Well, she's, if she's sitting on a chair, she's facing the bathroom. So she would have to see somebody coming in towards her to hit her, but apparently she doesn't. So she says she blacked out. And then an additional story of, well, after they've hit her and she's on the ground, then she sees a woman staring at her. And then in another story, she says that she sees a uh, or she, somebody's got their knee in her back, and she looks up, and a woman's staring at her, and there's a man behind her. So those, those were stories. And then she tells the police that they hit her on the left side, and then she tells the police somewhere else that she hits them on the right side. And um, she says that she's had a seizure. The case was circumstantial and combined with her statement about what had happened that it changed so much.
2: This has been the most prominent propaganda from Colleen over the last two years. Sandy keeps changing her story. And as you remember, I brought in expert Jim Fitzgerald to analyze Sandy's interview and this was his take on it.
6: either she's really a good liar and kept her facts you know straight through most of it or that's in fact what really happened. And uh, and she told it to the best of her memory, so there was no one uh, in terms of an overall view of her interview by the police. There's no uh, aha moment or that's when she is lying about this. That's when she's lying about this or some other feature. It looked like she to me she was relatively consistent throughout, uh, including the questions she could not answer because of her alleged memory loss and or injury which occurred as a result of either a seizure of some sort, or being hit on the head. So in terms of that goes, uh, that part of the interview goes, there is not that one smoking gun that, in fact, I would say, here's where she's lying, here's where she's telling the truth. It seems to me she was consistent throughout in terms of what she said.
3: Well, by the way, and she had already um, made preparations for the family to come over that day. So that was something that had happened a couple of days before is making sure that the family came over. Because if the family had not come over, um, you know, she wouldn't have been discovered and we wouldn't have this whole thing starting.
2: This is another false statement. It wasn't Sandy who arranged for the family to come over, and Barnett is very well aware of that, or at least she should be. It was actually Jim.
0: Y'all were supposed to come here for lunch yeah, today? Oh,
5: dinner, yeah, what, I guess.
0: What time were you supposed to be here? Four. And what time did you get here? Around 4.30. Okay. When was the last time that you spoke with these people, either one of them?
5: My uncle, I I not if it was last night or last night, yesterday was Saturday, Friday. I believe it was Friday. He texted me asking me, are we going to go over on th- today? And that my mom wasn't responding. And that if we wanted to go, come over. And I said, sure, we'll be there.
4: Chumba. Chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary. Forward,
2: Barnett raised the following points to demonstrate that Sandy could have committed this murder. First, she could have tied herself up. And the fact is that there's no way to prove this one way or the other. Herman Melgar is the only person, other than the person who actually tied the knots, who saw and touched the bindings. And he says that they were incredibly tight. He couldn't get them untied, and he had to use scissors to remove them. But Barnett says that he wasn't really paying attention to how tightly they were tied. But when I spoke to Herman, he told me that Sandy was bound by the arms and not the hands. Her arms were parallel to each other, wrist to elbow and wrist to elbow, with the bindings wrapped multiple times around Sandy's forearms. It's been demonstrated by some that a healthy, fit, younger man can apply this type of bindings to themselves but I've yet to see evidence that a 53-year-old arthritic woman can do it. Nonetheless, as I said, this cannot be proven one way or the other. And all we're trying to prove here is if Sandy could have bound herself, with no evidence to support the fact that she actually did, even if it was possible. Secondly, Barnett maintains that Sandy could have barricaded herself into the closet by using a rug to slide the chair under the doorknob. Again, there's no evidence that Sandy actually did do this, just a police video demonstrating that it can be done. To the contrary, the actual crime scene evidence and witness statements and testimonies rule out this possibility, which, in and of itself, rules out Sandy as Jim's killer. In order for Sandy to have barricaded herself into the closet using the rug technique, the rug would have to be found inside the closet or under the chair legs. It was neither, The rug was found outside of the closet and not under the chair. Herman has stated that the chair legs were on the tile and not on the rug. And the rug itself is visible in the crime scene photo scrunched up next to the chair, not under it. There is one thing, however, that Barnett has said that I do agree with. Jim's attacker was most likely female. Colleen Barnett believes that Jim was killed by a woman because...
3: Now, he doesn't have any kind of weapon, but he has a lot of defensive wounds, so he's trying to defend himself, and she just gets the better of him. And it doesn't take that much for her to stab him, and all of those stab wounds are not deep. They're only one or two inches deep, when the knife is, is like five or six inches long. So it's not any any big, brutal man who's using all his force to stab him. It's, it's, they're very um, shallow uh, stab wounds.
2: I believe that a woman murdered Jim Melgar because of the actual evidence available to the investigators. The shallow stab wounds don't actually provide us with any information about the attacker's gender. As Barnett said, Jim's arms were covered with defensive wounds. He was blocking the killer from getting full penetration with the knife. And while Jim was a small man, he was also a strong man. He was capable of stopping just about anyone from plunging a knife into his chest, especially when he's full of adrenaline. But there are three reasons that I believe that a woman was at least in the closet with Jim when he was killed. Number one, the size medium woman's blouse that was found in the bathtub. There's no explanation for the presence of that shirt other than the fact that its wearer was involved in the murder. And number two, Sandy recalls seeing a young Hispanic woman standing in the bathroom staring at her as she was being tied up. Now, Barnett would say that that's just another one of Sandy's changing stories, but as you've heard on the show directly from Marissa, the problem was never that Sandy didn't remember the woman. The problem was that she was confusing the events of her attack with the events of her rescue. You'll recall that shortly after the murder, Sandy asked Marissa who her friend was that was with her on the night that she was
5: rescued. She asked me who my friend was that I had brought over that day that she was found, I was confused by her question because I wasn't really sure what, you know, what friend she was talking about since I didn't have anybody else. You know, I I hadn't brought a friend over. So, I, you know, I of course, I just told her, no, you know, there was there was no friend there. And then she said, well, are you sure? Because, you know, I could have swore I saw somebody with you that day or maybe it was Monica's friend. And no, but, you know, you know, I had to explain to her, no, there was no friend that night. It was just us.
2: So there's a woman's blouse found in the bathtub along with the murder weapon. Sandy actually saw a young Hispanic woman standing in the bathroom as she was being tied up, and there's a long black hair clinging to the shirt sleeve just above Jim's body in the closet. Add all of these together, and you have yourself a young Hispanic woman involved in Jim's murder. So we've reached the point, after a year of investigation, that I'm now ready to deliver my theory of the crime. I doubt that this theory will come to a shock to any of you, but this is what I believe happened at 9538 Kelsey Meadows Court on December 22, 2012. After their anniversary dinner, Jim and Sandy retired to their jacuzzi tub for a night of drinks and romance. On the way into the house, Jim, hands full of leftovers and a CVS bag, inadvertently opened the garage door on the right side of the garage as he was closing the one on the left. About two hours into the Melgar Soak, a group of at least four men and at least one Hispanic woman approached the house on foot. Their presence alerted Jim and Sandy's dogs. Jim, concerned that the barking dogs would wake up the neighbors, got out of the tub. He slipped on his robe and Sandy's slippers, drink still in hand, and headed out of the bathroom. When he reaches the bedroom, he takes one last sip of his rum and coke and places his drink on the treadmill. Sandy waits for a minute or two in the tub as Jim begins retrieving the dogs. He goes to the back door and calls the dogs to the barricades that he had placed there to keep the puppies from roaming the house. Jim gets a hold of two of the dogs and walks them back across the house. He locks them into the office and heads back to the back door to grab the other two. About this time, Sandy decides to get out of the tub. She puts on a robe and a pair of underwear and sits on her closet chair to put lotion on her legs. And this is when the chaos begins. The team of home invaders rush Jim in the living room. Just like we've seen in the 2009 and the Kingwood home invasions, the offenders immediately split up. They have guns drawn and their first move is to hit Jim in the back of the head. He goes down. Seconds later, or even at the same time, part of the group, including at least one woman, finds Sandy. She's also hit on the head and knocked to the ground. Sandy is in and out of consciousness as she's being tied up in the closet. Meanwhile, Jim is being held at gunpoint, likely not with a real gun, and is told to take the offenders to his safe. They threaten him with killing Sandy if he doesn't cooperate. Jim leads them to his closet where he's tied up, first a phone cord on his ankles, then a red rope on his arms. Once Sandy is tied up, the person who did the tying is left to guard over her as the woman heads to the closet with Jim. She's holding Jim at knife point as the rest of the team splits up to start robbing the house. It's at that point that Sandy begins to seize, and the person watching over her is calling out that something is wrong. Jim, motivated by fear that his wife is being harmed and taking advantage of his captor being distracted, gets his arms free from his bindings and makes a move towards the woman with the knife. At this point, he's standing near the doorway of the closet. The woman stabs at him with her left hand, and Jim catches the blade with his right hand, cutting him to the bone. He turns around, spattering blood on the file cabinet and heads for his gun. Sadly for Jim, his ankles are bound and all it took was a little pressure from the woman behind him for him to fall to the ground. He managed to grab for the gun, catching the sleeve of a shirt with his bloody hand before he fell out of the gun's reach. At this point, the fight was on. The woman is left handed. She's stabbing wildly at Jim, but he's blocking most of the blows with his forearms. The woman connects, but not deeply. But as she does connect and recoils the blade, blood casts off the knife onto the wall. Just about the time when it was looking like Jim may get the better of his attacker, another one of the offenders jumps into the fight. This offender is right-handed and punches Jim on the left side of his face three times, each blow causing Jim's head to snap back into the molding from the shelf behind him and fracturing his eye socket. For a moment, it was absolute chaos in the closet. Three people were wrestling and fighting for their lives. It's during this moment of chaos that the woman manages to plunge the knife into Jim's liver. The blows to the head may have left him unconscious. I don't believe that Jim was dead yet when his attacker stood up and backed out of the closet. At this point, the other home invaders had begun the process of packing up items that they were going to steal and placing them in the garage. But Jim's murder brought that plan to an immediate halt. The woman was standing outside of the closet, covered in blood, and everyone sprung to action. The other offenders brought the woman towels to clean the blood off of herself. She sets a knife down on the white stool and removes her bloody shirt. When she's finished cleaning up, she either puts her jacket back on or grabs one of Sandy's shirts to put on. The towels, bloody shirt, and knife are thrown into the tub. Sandy's unconscious, and she's barricaded into the closet. The getaway car pulls into the driveway with the lights off. The team grabs a few items, they jump into the car, and drive away. I've developed my theory of the case based on the actual evidence available. Using the scientific method, I've used the available information to develop a hypothesis and then tested the hypothesis against all of the known factors. I can't say that my theory is entirely accurate, but it does fit with the evidence, including the evidence that we've obtained from the other similar home invasions. When I add up the information gathered from the crimes with similar MOs, I'm left with a profile of a team of Hispanic offenders. Experience in home invasions, but not murder. These people are violent and without conscience. I believe Jim's killer is a woman with dark hair, likely Hispanic, and left-handed. It's because of this profile, developed over a year of investigation, that this advertisement will be airing on Spanish-speaking radio stations in Houston, starting tomorrow. Now, if you don't speak Spanish, you're not going to understand a word of this. But don't worry, it's only 60 seconds long.
1: Jaime Melgar fue asesinado en su casa en la subdivisión de Laurel Creek en el noroeste de Houston, el 23 de diciembre de 2012. Los ladrones entraron en la casa alrededor de la medianoche. La esposa de Jaime estaba atada y encerrada en un armario, y Jaime fue golpeado y apuñalado en otro armario. Se ofrece una recompensa de 20 mil dólares a cualquier persona con información que conduzca a un arresto y convicción. Los interesados pueden llamar de forma anónima al 269-224-2833. Eso es, 269-224-2833. Los investigadores creen que un grupo de al menos cuatro hombres y una mujer hispana estaban involucrados. Llame a la línea de punta con información, 269-224-2833. Eso es, 269-224-2833. La recompensa es de mil dólares. Jaime fue asesinado dos días antes de Navidad en 2012. Llame a la línea de punta con información, 269-224-2833.
2: In order to maintain accountability and transparency, I want you all to know how this process worked. With listener donations, a donation from Liz, and contributions from me, the reward fund has reached a total of $27,000. Earlier this week, I hired a voice actress out of the NBI budget to record that commercial, and then locked in $6,000 worth of ad spots for this ad to run in the Houston market. If you didn't understand it, the reader is giving the details of the crime and offering a $20,000 reward for anyone who comes forward with a credible tip that leads to a conviction. Now, aside from the radio advertisement... We have several listeners that have been passing out flyers all throughout Houston for the last few weeks. And just a couple of days ago, KHOU ran a story about Sandy's case, and they also linked to the reward flyer. This season has been incredibly rewarding and productive. And it's been your support and engagement that I believe is going to solve this case. Aside from the reward fund and the other fundraising efforts, it was the Truth and Justice Army that brought the most successful post-conviction attorney in U.S. history into Sandy's case. When we embark on a new case, we never know how things are going to shake out. Sometimes we're able to secure a pro bono attorney to help with post-conviction proceedings. Sometimes we can get the Innocence Project to help. We found new evidence... And our involvement in one case set a string of events into motion that ultimately led to a man going free. And sometimes we just help bring in a wave of public support, so strong that the prosecution can no longer ignore the injustice that has occurred. And in season six, we experienced an interesting turn of events. After Colleen Barnett interviewed on this show, we launched into our investigation. And it didn't take long for myself and all of you to discover that much of the propaganda being spread by the district attorney was, well, fake news. Step into the
0: world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
1: VGW Group, no purchase necessary. where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18+.
2: You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in
3: reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.
2: Every prosecutor in every season has to be approached differently. Sometimes we need to show our support for the DA that is genuinely searching for the truth. And sometimes... The best strategy is to expose the district attorney for their disingenuous facade of justice. Let the world see that they are the villain in the story and force them to make a move. We've seen this strategy work in the past. For you longtime listeners, you remember the season two villain, David Dobbs. After nearly a year of exposing Dobbs for every dirty trick that he pulled in multiple cases, he finally agreed to meet with me. And from there he began helping to find real justice for Ed Eights and Elnora Griffin, switching his role from the villain to the hero. In December of this year, Colleen Barnett tweeted out this response to an onslaught of angry tweets that went her way. Quote, I come in peace. I would be happy to try the quote real killer if there was evidence of someone else. Bob asked if I would consider any evidence and I said yes. So far... Nothing. Hire Kathleen Zellner for a real exoneration person. I support it. That tweet set the ball in motion. Kathleen Zellner responded, quote, Have Sandra Jean Melgar contact us. From there, Liz got in touch with Zellner, hired her, and within weeks, Kathleen was on a plane to Houston to meet with District Attorney Kim Ogg. And Ogg appears to be cooperating fully with Zelmer in the search for real justice for Jim Melgar. As we speak, new DNA testing is being conducted on the case. And I fully believe that with the advances in technology, Zelmer is going to find the evidence that will put Jim's killer behind bars. Throughout this year, we have put a microscope onto the state's case against Sandy. And the closer we look the more it crumbles. She was arrested and convicted on nothing more than a theory. A theory that is not supported by the evidence. The textbook approach of looking at other crimes in the area with similar MOs presented us with a much more plausible explanation. And something that we haven't talked about nearly enough is the fact that there is unknown DNA all over this crime scene. There is none of Sandy's DNA anywhere on or near Jim's body and also none of Jim's DNA was found on Sandy. There's no evidence that the crime scene was cleaned up or that Sandy cleaned herself up after the murder, and yet she was found without any injuries or even a drop of blood on her. On the other hand, there were multiple unknown DNA profiles throughout this crime scene. Partial profiles were discovered on Sandy's bindings, on the closet doorknob where Jim was found, on the backpack in the garage, on the jewelry in the backpack, on the jewelry box, on the video game case, on the game, and more. Harris County never bothered to run any of this DNA through any databases, nor did they ever collect any DNA from any alternate suspects to compare it to. Any thorough and objective investigation should conclude from this evidence that Sandy Melgar is a victim, and Jim was murdered by a group of vicious home invaders. All of the evidence on the crime scene points away from Sandy, and there's literally nothing that points back to her. I believe that Sandy has a great shot of being set free due to the work of Mac and Allison Seacrest. I think that they have presented a winning argument in her direct appeal. But that's only half the battle. Jim's killer is still out there. And Jim deserves justice. As I've been saying, it's going to take science and forensics to solve this case. And that's why now it's finally time to pass the torch to Kathleen Zellner. I'll be keeping you all posted along the way with updates and passing any tips received on to Zellner. And before I move on to our final segment of this season, I want to make this statement loud and proud. Sandy Melgar is absolutely, without question, 100% innocent. Jim's real killer will be brought to justice, and Sandy Melgar will be coming home. There's no way that I could conclude this season without letting you all hear from one of the strongest women that I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. Liz Rose has never stopped fighting for justice for her parents. Her life was flipped upside down by the loss of her father, and subsequently the loss of her mother. She was right there doing Sean Carlsall's job for him since day one. When I took over the investigation, she jumped in with both feet. She has been an invaluable partner throughout this process. She's paid the price for her involvement. Liz has been subjected to ridicule and personal attacks, not only by heartless keyboard warriors, but at times even a state's expert witness, the foreman of the jury, and even the prosecutor herself. But no matter how hard things have gotten, Liz has never given up the fight for justice. She's endured pain that most of us could never even imagine. And yet she still fights. She fights for her father. She fights for her mother. She fights for the legacy of their marriage. And she fights for justice. My final interview with Liz brought us both to tears. For the last year, we have stood side by side in this fight. And Liz wanted to take one last opportunity to speak to you, the Truth and Justice Army, the strangers from around the world that have held her up in her darkest hours.
5: This whole thing has been so emotional, and I've had such a wide range of feelings over the past year. But, you know, I'm just so grateful that I've made such a good friend. And I've always felt like you've had our best interests at heart. And it's never been like for ratings or to put your podcast. But you've really genuinely been interested and cared for for us. And I really, really appreciate that. I've appreciated everything you've done for us. I'm never going to forget that. (laughs)
2: it has been my absolute honor and privilege and pleasure to work with you Liz and one thing that I know for sure is that that this this isn't over for us we have more work to do and even when your mom is home, you and I are gonna be friends for the rest of our lives.
5: Oh, you're family now, Bob. Your family now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no no one can go through a process like this together and and not be and not become family.
5: Yeah, I, I am I can't imagine having been able to do all of that with um just with anybody else. It's been um it's been such a pleasure and it's been it's been bearable <laughs> because <laughs> of you.
2: <laughs> the last thing I wanna do, Liz, before I let you go for the last time on the podcast for this season, I wanna give you the opportunity to speak to all the listeners. Everyone that's listening right now that's been there fighting for your mom and supporting her and supporting you and fighting for justice for your dad. They're all listening right now. And this is your opportunity to say whatever you want to say to them.
5: I just want to say, thank you. Those aren't, that's not even enough. Those aren't, those words aren't, they're not strong enough, but I just, I appreciate Everyone's time and attention and their, their drive to to make things better and make things right. And we appreciate every letter that you've written on behalf of my mom or to my mom and all the support you've given us <laughs> because you don't know us, that you've treated us like family and you've cared for us and then you want to make things bright and you've just you've been that light in the dark that has been missing for so long and you just thank you so much
2: Do you believe your mom's coming home?
5: 100% I believe my mom is, is coming home.
2: Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Catherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod, and my personal Twitter handle is at Bob Ruff Truth. And For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. On Easter Sunday, 1991, in Bloomington, Illinois, an 18-year-old young man was murdered in cold blood. Billy Little was simply working his shift at the Clark gas station, selling gas, cigarettes, and candies to customers before he managed to trigger the station's silent alarm just before he was shot to death. took police eight years before they finally made an arrest. The man that was eventually convicted, to this day, swears that he's innocent.
6: At that
3: time, I was putting in my tire, I heard my car backfired, what I heard
0: backfired. There was a reason why you know about this murder. I started walking to the gas station, I saw an individual come
3: out of the gas station backwards I told him, I said you're a punk, you killed Billy for no ...and I heard my car was about to die or it backfired, and I turned around. And when I turned around to go back to the gas station, I had ran into someone, and he was... Don't everybody in
4: town
3: knew to was um, And then he walked around the corner and... The were you at that station, that day Yes, I was. Someone say, hey, back up. And I turned around and there was an officer across the street at the credit union. You ever warrant to your arrest? for a murder He was the gas station attendant. But you're wrong. wrong. And another person went around the building.
2: Did you kill Bill Little? I did not. Season 7 of Truth and Justice premieres on Sunday, July 14th.